Well, I think I should retire more often. <laughs> Friends, uh, it is such a privilege to be with you. Rabbi Lawrence, Dan Binstock, Rabbi Leitner, Rabbi Dr. Rafi Zaram, Robertson Epstein, friends. It is uh, an enormous privilege and boost to my self-image that even briefly I shared shelf space with Jeffrey Archer. <laughs> you fulfilled a lifetime ambition, Robertson Epstein. <laughs> and uh, really, it's, it's been a privilege. And, it is doubly so to be able to launch this, the last of the Marserim, they all five have now been completed, to launch it here in the Finchley community where uh, I began my journey, here in Cheda. And if any of you feel, you know, a little Jewishly challenged, please take comfort from the fact that my brothers all did better than me in Cheda. But you just keep trying and eventually you climb the ladder. Um, but I have such warm memories of this community. It's where my journey began, and of course, fond memories of now Chief Rabbi Mervis and all that he has done for this community. And it's great to be with you. But doubly so, a privilege to be able to collaborate with two remarkable people, Linda and Michael Weinstein. We thank you for sponsoring this, Marsa, especially for choosing to do so in honor and memory of your late parents, beloved Stella and Ernest Weinstein, and Nelly and Solo Greenberg of blessed memory. You were wonderful children to them, and you have cherished their memory. And I pray, may all the davening that is done using this marsa bring nachas ruach to their souls in heaven. And we hope they are smiling at this way that you are keeping their spirit and their memory alive. Thank you so much. <laughs> Personal thanks to the man who was my rov for 20 years, Diane Binstock, uh, who has, where are you, Diane Binstock? I've lost you. There you are. <laughs> who has single-handedly saved Minhag Anglia. You have no idea how important this is. First of all, Minhag Anglia is our cherished treasure. And we felt we were losing it at a certain point in time, about 10 years ago. And we said we must bring it back. And it has been Dime Binstock's incredible erudition that has saved Minhag Anglia for posterity. And I have to tell you that in most cases, Minhag Anglia is just a beautiful Minhag. I mean, it really is. It's clear. It's, it doesn't have you reading endless, endless reams of things that you don't understand. It is very halachically pure. And Dan Binstock, we salute you for your leadership, for your scholarship. And please let us hear a round of applause for Dan Binstock. <laughs> to Matthew Miller and all the team at Koran, you have absolutely, through Koran, through Mugid, revolutionized Jewish publishing in a remarkably short time and with great and vast uh, scope. Um, and Matthew, you have really become the revolutionary behind what in America they call modern orthodoxy. Here <laughs> we don't call it modern orthodoxy. We call it inclusive orthodoxy, which I hold by because having gone around the world, I still believe there is nothing as beautiful as the United Synagogue ideal, which is also incidentally the Sephardi ideal 
of including everyone in the community. And that makes our communities, frankly, more generous, more open, and even more spiritual. So uh, thank you, Matthew, for all you've done for, for publishing. Special thanks, I, it's invidious to mention anyone, but um, since I'm, I've retired and you can't really get at me, you will forgive me if I single out uh, our niece, Jessica, Jessica Sachs, who has done the most beautiful translations you will ever find of all the Megillot, and there is poetry there which Jessica has brought, and we thank her in absentia. She's living in Yerushalayim and just become a mother, and we thank Jessica for that. <clears throat> There's so much to talk about on Shavuot. Forgive me if I don't do up my jacket, but I'm carrying three microphones. I wonder why exactly, just to make sure that everything I say is non-deniable, I suspect. But... Um, I thought I'd just focus for one moment on a single strand of Shavuot, which I think is really important. And that is the Megillah we read, the Book of Ruth. And uh, it's fascinating that if you look at, um, if you were ordering the books of the Bible, where would you put Ruth? I don't know if you've ever had a look at a, a non-Jewish Bible. I said the, the Hebrew Bible, Tanakh, and the Old Testament just happened to be two completely different books that just happened to contain the same words. But they are different because their order is different. In Judaism, we order the books of Tanakh depending on the degree of holiness, the quality of inspiration. So Torah, direct word, the word of God to man, Nevi'im, the prophets, the word of God through man, and Ketuvim, the words of human beings to God. And that's why the book of Ruth appears in Ketuvim. But if you were just ordering them chronologically, where would you place the book? It, it comes after Shoftim and before Sefer Shmuel, the end of the book of Judges, the beginning of the book, the four books of Kings, Samuel 1 and 2, Kings 1 and 2, because it begins, it came to pass in the days when the judges judged, and it ends with the birth of Israel's greatest king, David HaMelech. Now, if you, I were to ask you, in terms of its subject matter, which other book of the Bible does it most remind you of? Because it's not about dramatic political events or great miracles, like Shemot or Bamidbar or Dvarim. It is not a work of prophecy. Where would, what's the book that's most like it? Bereshit. Yeah, Bereshit, because it's the tale of ordinary human beings demonstrating extraordinary gifts and strength of character. And it is like Bereshit. And the interesting thing is that the same question was asked of both books. Do you remember what Rashi says? The first Rashi on the Torah. Anyone remember that one? Somebody remember it because I need a drink of water. <laughs> the only chance you get for a rabbinical silence. Um, either you're drinking water or you've just poured it on your hands. Um, <laughs> you remember, what is the first Oh, come on, you have to help me. 
the first Rashi, Omar Rabbi Yitzchak, Rabbi Yitzchak said, the Bible shouldn't have begun with Bereshit Bara Elohim, with God creating the universe. The Torah means Torah, a book of laws. What was the first law given to Israel? Rosh Chodesh, Exodus chapter 12. So that is where the book should have begun. So the question is asked of Bereshit, why was it written? And Chazal asked the same question on the book of Ruth. This is what they ask. They say, Omar Rabbi Zera, Megilazu, Emba Lotumu, Velotara, Velo Isa, Velo Heta, Velama Nechtava. It contains no laws about pure and impure, permitted or forbidden. Lama Nechtava. Why was it written? Lelamedcha Kamaschatov, Legomlechasadim, to tell you of the reward of people who perform acts of kindness. Now, if you think about that, here are two books very similar in tone, very similar in subject matter. Two books about which rabbis asked, why should it have been included at all? And let me read to you a little passage from the book of Ruth and ask you, what does it remind you of? It says, Vayan Boaz, this is the first time Boaz and Ruth meet. And Boaz says to Ruth, It's been told to me, all you did for your mother-in-law after your husband died, and you left your father and your mother, and the land of your birth, and you traveled to a people that you didn't know before. What, is, what passage does that remind you of? Avram, exactly. Abraham leaves all that is familiar to him, environmentally and humanly, and sets out on a journey. Ruth does exactly the same thing. She leaves her family and her land and sets out on an unknown journey. Ruth is a kind of female counterpart of Avram Avinu. And I think we now understand why the book of Ruth is there and how it relates to Bereshit. Bereshit is a prelude, a prelude to the birth of the Jewish people. Bereshit is a book about family. Throughout, it's the family of Abraham and, uh, Avram and Sarah. It's, the, it's a, a family book. It is the prelude to the birth of the nation. Ruth is a prelude to the birth of the kingdom. Until Ruth, Israel has been, I, if you, I, I don't know how many wise there are in Scrabble, but here's a good word that you might use in a crossword puzzle, amphictyony. And amphictyony is a federation of tribes. Okay? You never knew that word, did you? It's a good word. It's really, you know, if you've got all those whys, it gets rid of it. So, um, so Ruth is a prelude from a tribal society, which is not a unified nation, to the birth of Israel as a memshalah, as a kingdom, as a united body politic. So we have these two preludes. And they are telling us something terribly, terribly important. That even though the rest of the Torah is about the birth of Israel as a nation, and even though the books of Shmuel and Malachim are about the birth of Israel as a kingdom, 
intensely political books. Nonetheless, the fact that the book of Bereshit is there and the book of Ruth is there is telling us of the primacy of the personal over the political. Don't believe you can just run politics by politics alone. A society depends on acts of kindness and generosity and moral strength because without those human values told in simple stories of families and their travails and the strength that gets you through those travails, they are the things that matter. And that is why Bereshit is so important, why Ruth is so important, because when all the politics are finished, though Jewish politics are never finished, nonetheless it is human moral values that count most of all. Don't try and build a political system without a moral underpinning of love and kindness within and beyond the family. That's a very, very profound thing. So that is a setting of the Book of Ruth as a whole. But what is really interesting is this. We go through the whole story of Ruth, and uh, I'm not going to tell you the story because I don't want to be, what do they call it on IMDb? A spoiler. I'm not going to tell you who done it. We'll leave that to Jeffrey Archer and, and the Megillah. But here we are. We come to the end, towards the end, and everyone is comforting Naomi because she's now, you know, she, she went full. She came back empty. Don't call me Naomi. I'm bitter, you know, and all this thing. And at the end, she has a grandchild. And the... And... Um, the people say to her, all the people say, you know, bless her, and so on and so forth, and they say to her, may, may this woman who came to your house be like Rachel and Leah, who built the house of Israel and did great things in Ephrata, and vayhi betacha kebet peretz asheyalda tama liyehuda. All of a sudden, out of nowhere, at the end of the book, they bless her by saying, may she be like Tamar, uh, like parrots, who, may this child be like parrots, who was born to Tamar and Yehuda. What on earth are Tamar and Yehuda doing in this story right at the end? They played no part. Parrots? What's this got to do? And all of a sudden we realize that the Megillah is saving its biggest surprise to the end. Because we now go back to the story of Tamar. What is that story? You remember, it's told in Bereshis 38, in the middle of the Joseph story. And it begins by saying, At that time, Judah went down from his brothers, and he planted his tent by Isha Dulamei, whose name was um, Chira, and he married a Canaanite woman and the daughter of Shua, and she took, he took her as wife. And you remember what happens. Um, he has three children, Er, Onan, and Shelah. Er marries a local woman, presumably Canaanite, although there are Midrashim, but the plain sense of the word is uh, Canaanite. Er dies. 
Onan marries Tamar as a, uh, a, as a form of yibum, as a form of leveret marriage, but clearly does not want her to have a child who will be seen as the child of his dead elder brother, and he does what he does and dies. And having lost two of his children this way, Judah refuses to let Tamar marry his youngest child, Shelah, because he doesn't want... The result is he leaves Tamar as an aguna, somebody who is bound to marry Shelah but has not been released, and at the same time Shelah is not willing to marry her, or Judah is not willing to let him marry her, and the result is she is left an aguna, a chained woman, and so on. And eventually, as you know, she dresses up as a prostitute, stations herself at a particular juncture, of the, of the way, when uh, Yehuda is coming back from the sheep shearing, he takes her to be a prostitute, he lies with her, uh, she takes his staff and his seal as, as pledges against pay, payment, eventually um, he comes back the next day to pay the sum, she, she's not there, no one's ever heard of a prostitute in this district, and later it is discovered that Tamar has become pregnant. Judah assumes by some strange person who's not part of the family, since she is bound to Shelah by the laws of leveret marriage, this must be an adulterous union, and he has her brought out and sentenced to death. And with great tact, Tamar, without saying a word, just brings out the staff and the seal and says, I'm pregnant to the one to whom these belong. And Judah realizes, at a moment, everything that she has done, he realizes, I am the father. And uh, at that moment, the future of the family is secured. Now, do you see any connections between the story of Tamar and the story of Ruth? How do they begin, both stories? By somebody moving away from the rest of the Jewish family. Elimelech and his two sons go to Moab. They leave their people. Judah, with his, leaves his brothers. So they begin by a story of moral and physical decline. Judah goes down. He, as it were, both books begin with the, the senior male, as it were, Judah and Elimelech, leaving their people. Secondly, who are the real movers and shakers in both stories? They're women, exactly. They are the ones who uh, make everything happen. Um, thirdly, of course, they begin with the same narrative to sons die. Judah's two sons, Er and Onan, Elimelech's two sons, Machlon Vechilion. Then fourthly, the woman is left in both cases as a childless widow, and both of them are unable to undergo the standard form of leveret marriage. Judah, uh, in the case of Tamar, because Judah won't let his third son married Tamar. And in the case of 
Ruth, what does Naomi say to Ruth and Orpah? He says, go back to your family because, you know, I'm, I'm too old to have any other children. I know that technically, if I were to have another child, you would be bound to marry that child or he would be bound to marry you, but I'm too old to have children, so go back. So they're about childless widows who are unable somehow to ameliorate their situation in any conventional way. Both Tamar and uh, Ruth are left as widows. They're left as childless. And in both cases, the story turns on a kind of Leveret marriage that is non-normative. Are you with me? Because in Leveret marriage, yiboom, it's you marry your brother-in-law. But in the case of Tamar, who does she become pregnant by? Her father-in-law. And as Ramban and the other Rishonim point out, this was the form of leveret marriage before the giving of the Torah. Yeah? That it wasn't restricted to brother-in-law, but a male within the family. So according to the... So this was a, a non-normative form of Yibum. And the case of Ruth... Again, you know, she's marrying Boaz. Boaz picks this law up. We don't know quite where it came from, that if you're going to buy the field, you've got to marry the woman. Uh, no one quite knows where this law is. This is common law rather than biblical law. But one way or another, both turn on unconventional forms of leveret marriage because Boaz is not the closest relative and so on. In both stories, who was the closest relative? In, in uh, the case of Tamar, it was Judah's son number three, Shelah. In the case of Ruth, who was the closest relative? Poloni Almoni, Mr. Anonymous. So in both cases, the person nearest to performing the duty is somehow not going to perform that duty. Uh, the next question, uh, in both cases, why does Tamar... And why does Ruth want to have a child? Pardon? Yeah, what's it called? Lahakim Shem Hamit. To make sure the name of the dead husband is perpetuated by having a child who will carry his lineage forward. And both Tamar and Ruth are determined to do this, as Boaz says to. Uh, to Ruth himself, it has been told to me your kindness to the living and to the dead. So um, in both cases, it is the women who are mindful of the moral duty to perpetuate the names of the dead. And of course, both have to do rather daring acts. I don't know whether this would pass I mean, this is, you know, what do they call it now? I, I haven't been to cinema for a very long time. But it's an adult rating here. I mean, here we have Tamar dressing up as a prostitute. Here we have Ruth coming to Boaz at night and saying, spread your cloak over me and, you know, etc., etc. These are daring acts, not the kind of things you're taught to do at school in any shape or form. And here we have Two women who are the ultimate, ultimate outsiders. Because number one, to be a widow 
well, sorry, let me be blunt. Number one, to be a woman was not exactly, you know, didn't exactly immediately get you to the portals of greatness and power. The Torah is telling us here it's the women who really matter. It's they who have the moral courage. But note who these women are. Number one, they're widows. And don't forget the vulnerability of a widow. On, at, at every festival, you had to include the ger, the yatom, and the almana, the stranger, the orphan, and the widow. Number two, they were childless widows, which is doubly vulnerable because nobody's bound to look after them and provide for them. Number three, as we said, the people who might have taken them in, the candidates for leveret marriage, are both stopped from doing so. But number four, because these are women from the least favored nation. You don't get worse in the Torah than being a Canaanite or being a Moabite. That's it. You know, I mean, you understand how the sages had to really strive to understand why it was that Ruth, who came to Moab, and the Torah says, a Moabite shall not enter the congregation of the Lord to the tenth generation. How were we to understand that? And as we know, it was attributed to Shmuel Hanavi that Moavivalo Moaviyah, a Moabite man, not a Moabite woman, but one way or another, there was no love lost between the Israelites and the Canaanites. There was no love lost between the Israelites and the Moabites. And here we are, two women at the very, very margins of society who nonetheless emerge as the heroines. They are the people who allow the Jewish story to continue. And I find that absolutely extraordinary. And of course, right at the end, the book of Ruth has a little surprise in store for us. And it lists the genealogy, the family tree of David Hamela, which begins with Peretz. Did you ever do the count of how many generations? There are 10 generations from Adam to Noah. There are 10 generations from Noah to Avram Avinu. There are 10 generations from Peretz to David HaMelech. Who is there at number one? The parents of Peretz were Yehuda and Tamar. Who is number seven, the key spot? Ruth and Boaz. Now the Torah is telling us something really extraordinary here. You know, there was a, um, there was a narrative. Um, it was told by um, one of Sigmund Freud's pupils called The Birth of a Hero. Have you come across this idea that there's a standard narrative, The Birth of a Hero? It's told of Sargon, it's told of the founder of Christianity, it's told of, of, of Oedipus and Laius and so on. You know the story that uh, always a child is about to be born. A king sees that child as a threat to his kingship. He arranges for the child to be killed. Somehow or other, the child isn't killed, is found and adopted by very ordinary, simple people. And eventually, everything that is foretold actually happens. The child grows up, does defeat or kill the king, 
and is subsequently discovered to have royal blood. He was royal after all. And that is the story told about Oedipus and Laius. It is the story told about Sargon. It is the story told in early Christianity about King Herod and the birth of the founder of Christianity, and so on and so forth. It's the standard story, the birth of the hero. So in every standard story of the birth of the hero, the hero turns out to have royal blood. Now, Judaism doesn't tell a story like that. Because who is the genealogy that the Torah wants us to understand for David Amela? Are you with me? The Torah only tells us two major narratives about King David's background, his family background. And who does it tell us were his key figures in the narrative? Tamar and Ruth. It is from these ultimately marginalized figures that come the character, the strength that marks David as Israel's greatest king. It's an extraordinary statement. There is, incidentally, a similar to story told about Moshe Rabbeinu. If you've, uh, Matthew now publishes my Haggadah, shop early for next Pesach, whatever, but I call it, I call it Freud's greatest Freudian error. Because Freud was convinced that Moses was an Egyptian and that the same story told about Oedipus was true about uh, Moses, that he was an Egyptian who was a threat to Pharaoh, so Pharaoh says, kill all the male children, and etc., etc. So he believes that the same story is told of Moses as is told of all the other great mythical figures. What Freud didn't understand is that the Moses story takes that story and turns it upside down. Moses actually was adopted by a royal family, but actually is totally ordinary. Could have come like we did from the East End, you know, the Lower East Side. And in fact, this is hinted at in the Torah itself. I once pointed out that the Torah, you know, contains little hints here and there that make us go back and read the text a second time and show us something we never saw before. Who gave Moses the name Moses? Pharaoh's daughter, right? She, now, and, she, and the Torah says, she called him Moses, because I drew, drew him from the water. That works fine in Hebrew. But did Pharaoh's daughter speak Hebrew? I mean, if she's going to name her adopted child, she is probably going to give him an Egyptian name, which she does. She calls him Moses. And Moses is an Egyptian word. As you see in Thut Moses, and you see in Ramses. Right? Messes. The Messes of Ramses is the Messes of Moses. There are only two letters difference between these two people. R-A. What does R-A stand for? No, not the Royal Academy. It is... Ra is the Egyptian sun god. And now you see the story that the Torah is telling us. 
that here we have Ramses and Moses, this one whom everyone thinks is the child of the sun god, semi-divine. And who is on the other side? Just a child. Because your dignity, your strength, and your character doesn't depend on who you were born to. Every child is special. And that is what the Torah is telling us. So in place of all the conventional narratives that the hero turns out to have been predestined, it's in his DNA, he is the child of royalty, it's turned upside down in the case of Moses, it's turned upside down in the case of David Amalek. In fact, the whole story of David Amalek is telling us that he's the one person who no one thought of as king. You remember when God tells Samuel that he is displeased with Saul and he's going to take the... Uh, He's going to take the kingship away from him. Go to the house of Yishai. He'll, one of his sons is going to be the king. So you remember the story? He goes to Yishai. As Yishai brings out his number one son, Eliav, who looks every inch the king. He says, this must be the guy. And Hashem says to Shmuel, think again. God doesn't look at outward appearances. God looks to the heart. And he goes through the seven children of Yishai, you remember? And none of them is right. And he says, have you got anyone else? <laughs> and Yishai said, oh, well, hang on. I forgot about David, you know, the little kid. He's out there looking after the sheep. And God says, that's the man. So everything that we take of as conventional in the story of a hero is turned upside down in Judaism. Because Judaism is telling us that heroes are not born, they are made, and they are sometimes made by the women who gave birth to the family tree and their strengths of character. Because what Tamar and Ruth share in common is very simple. Number one, they uh, show loyalty. They show kindness. And that is what God wants. He doesn't want military heroes. He doesn't want miracle workers. He doesn't want a high priest who has no contact with the people. He wants somebody with loyalty to his people, somebody who's willing to make personal sacrifices and take risks for the sake of the people, for the sake of the continuity of the people. And that, the Torah is hinting, Tanakh is hinting, David got from these two remarkable women at the beginning of the 10-generation sequence and at stage number seven, from Tamar and from Ruth. Number two, it is their moral courage that allows David HaMelech to become the really courageous king that he was and at the same time, the infinitely vulnerable human being that he was. Here is a man who united Israel, who made Jerusalem. I mean, we've just had Yom Yerushalayim. David Omelech made Jerusalem the capital of Israel. He united Israel. He conceived the plan to build the temple. But he was also the man who wrote the Psalms, the most intimate insight into the vulnerability of the human soul that's ever been written. And this he got from these two women. It is telling us, don't stereotype whole nations. You may think, who are the Canaanites? Who are the Moabites? But God has so distributed the gifts of human character that they can appear where you least expect them. So never write anyone off 
just because of who they are, what their name is, what their ethnic origin is. The people you least expect it from, they surprise you the most. And here, then, is the story of David. I think something else. You see, there is a little device that um, is very rare, which I mentioned, called a contronym. Have you ever come across this word, a contronym? Do you know what that is? It's a word that means one thing and its opposite. These are very, very rare words. To cleave means to split in two or to join as one. Fast, as in Russia, you know. Fast means moving rapidly, or if something is stuck fast, it means it's immovable. Are you with me now? There are not that many contronyms, because it, it, uh, it's very rare indeed. But there is one contronym that appears only in two places, in Bereshit and in the book of Ruth. And it is the, the verb haker, to recognize, right? And in, the, uh, in, in another form of the verb, lahitna care means to act as a stranger, to act as somebody you don't recognize and who doesn't recognize you. That appears in the story of Joseph. Do you remember when the brothers come from, uh, to buy grain? Vayaker, he recognized them. Vayitna care alehem, but he acted like a stranger to them. It's a stunning verse. And it appears in the Ruth story as well. The first time Ruth and Boaz meet. Ruth says, Lama hakireni, why have you recognized me? Vanohi nochria. And I, given that I am a stranger, a foreigner. That word is absolutely key. The second we hear that word haker, we realize that it first appears, even before the meeting of Joseph and his brothers, do you remember where it appears? It appears in the story of Tamar and in the immediately previous story of Joseph going out to see his brothers, you remember? And they sell him as a slave, and they take his cloak, and they dip it in the blood of the goat, uh, sheep, and they bring it back to Jacob, and they say, Haterna, please recognize, is this your brother's cloak or not? Uh, your son's cloak or not? And Jacob recognizes it and begins mourning. Judah has used an act of recognition to deceive his father. When Tamar, in the next chapter, is accused by Judah of illicit sex, she gives, hands over the staff and the seal and says, Haker na, please recognize to whom these belong is the father of this child. J Judah has used the idea of recognition to tell, to get his father to recognize a story that wasn't true. Tamar uses the same device, the same word, to get Judah to recognize 
the real truth. And that turns out to be the key moment in Judah. Because you remember, if you read Voracious on the surface, who do you think is the hero of the last third of the book? It's all about Joseph. But who actually became the father of Israel's kings? Judah. And why is it that Judah overtakes Joseph? And my theory is because of Tamar. Because Tamar, by forcing Judah to recognize the truth, Judah becomes the first person in history to say, I was wrong, she was right. Every Jewish husband has to learn those two lines. <laughs> but Judah was the first person to say it. And when you say that, you've got, begun, you have become the first Baal Tshuva in history. And we always say, the Gemarian Brochus says, and Davlam and Gimel, the place where Balei Tshuva stand, even the perfectly righteous cannot stand. Now, what do we call Joseph? Yosef HaTzadik. But Judah was a Baal Tshuva. What was the rank Joseph got to? Mishneh Lamelech, second to the king. Judah reached even higher. He became the ancestor of Israel's king. And the interesting thing is that, do you know why Judah was called Judah? It was Leah's fourth child. And she says, This time I will thank God. And she called him Yehuda. But without knowing it, the same root, Yadah, in a different conjugation of the verb, becomes Lahit Vadot, or what we call, when we say, Shamnu Bogadnu, or we call that vidui. It's the same word in Hebrew, to thank and to confess. In both cases, it means to admit. When you thank, you admit your debt to somebody else. When you confess, you admit your sins to God. Judah becomes the first person to confess, I got it wrong. He becomes the first bold tshuva, and he becomes the hero of Jewish history. Why are we called Jews? because we are children of Yehuda. Even though in biblical times we were called Yisrael, because we lost 10 tribes and all that remained was uh, the southern kingdom of Yehuda, and we're all descended, so we are called Yehudim. And the question is, did this have an impact 10 generations later on King David? I don't know if you ever noticed this, but Israel's first two kings, Saul and David, both committed a sin. Saul failed to, uh, to, to execute vengeance against King Agag, the Amalekite king, and David Amalek with Bathsheba. They both committed a sin. Both of them were reprimanded by a prophet. Saul reprimanded by Samuel. David reprimanded by Natan Hanavid, by the prophet Nathan. Both said, Chatati, I have sinned. And yet Saul's kingdom was taken away from him. Whereas David's kingdom was confirmed for all time. What was the difference between these two confessions? Saul tried bluster. You remember, it wasn't me, it was the people, and it wasn't that important, and that, you know, and he, he tries to defend himself, and when Shmuel is completely unpersuaded, he says, as they used to say about 
Chief Rabbi J.H. Hurst, he never despaired of a peaceful solution to any problem once every other alternative had been exhausted. So when Saul tries every other alternative when they're all exhausted, he finally says, Chatati I sin. But when Nathan tells King David the story of the rich man and the poor man and the sheep, and David gets all morally indignant about the rich man, and Nathan turns to him and says, Atahaish, you are that man, David, without a second's hesitation, says, doesn't try and justify, excuse, or minimize. David has his throne confirmed because he learned to confess. He got that from his antecedent ten generations back called Yehuda. And who taught Yehuda how to confess? Tamar. So you see how a single story extended over ten generations comes down to this strange contronym of lahakir and lahitnaker, of recognizing and strangers. It's what whoever it was, I've forgotten who it was, Tennessee Williams called the kindness of strangers. That is what this story is about. The kindness of two women, both of them outsiders in Israeli society, who nonetheless adopted Judaism, and its values, even more than the people you would expect to be the key protagonists. And it is their concern for Jewish values, for loyalty, the kindness of strangers that made David HaMelech Israel's greatest king. So I hope we've seen here a little story that is extended over a vast tract of time, but an incredibly powerful that actually it was strong women who made David the strong king, and that we should never write anyone off for their rank, for their ethnicity, because sometimes the most beautiful deeds are done from the people we hardly notice, and it is they who are the heroes, or in this case, the heroines of the Jewish story. Let us be inspired by Tamar and by Ruth to show loyalty and kindness to strangers. And we will be living the great tradition, hopefully this Shavuot and for many Shavuot to come. Thank you very much indeed.